welcome to another episode of the Following Films podcast. Today we have a special guest who has taken the literary world by storm with his Battle for Forever series. I'm thrilled to be joined by best-selling author Edward Savio, whose latest novel, League of Ald, from the Battle for Forever series is now available. The audiobook is narrated by Ray Porter, known for his unforgettable portrayal of the ultimate DC villain Darkseid in Zack Snyder's Justice League. The combination of Savio's gripping storytelling and Porter's pitch-perfect narration promises an immersive experience like no other. But before we dive into our conversation with Edward, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Bookman's. Bookman's is your go-to independent bookstore, where you can find an extensive selection of books, movies, music, and more. They truly believe in the power of storytelling and the magic of the creative arts. So if you're looking to expand your film, music, or book collection, be sure to visit your nearest Bookman's. Have you followed the Following Films podcast on Spotify? If you have, thank you. If you haven't, head over to Spotify and search for Following Films and give us a follow. It really does help the show. This is a fun conversation. We are only scheduled to go for about 30 minutes, but ended up chatting for over an hour. We discuss Edward's writing process, the importance of slowing down, how creativity can save therapy bills, and, of course, the audiobook, League of Ald. Enough of my yammering. Let's get to the conversation with Edward. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. But I was just curious because I was actually looking at your stuff and I was listening to you pitch, you know, the, the, uh, on the intro of, uh, Spotify. How's that been for you? Oh, on Spotify. It's been really good, actually. Yeah. It's been, it's been, um, the, the nice thing about that is they just kind of, I'm not handling any hosting at this point, so I don't have to pay for server fees, anything like that. They do yep. everything and there's basically, you make money off it right away. So it makes it super simple and it's monetized. It's pretty simple. I mean, I could probably go somewhere else and make a little bit more money and have a lot more work to do and simplicity sometimes wins. So that's, that's what I went with. I, you know, I, I agree. I mean, I actually have started to do some, you know, I've wanted to do a podcast for a while and, and, you know, for me, I have the technology to get into do it if I want to, but then yeah. I don't do my writing. Right. So I, I can do it, but I shouldn't. So. Yeah. See, this is, this is the thing that I love. It's this right here. It's uh connecting with artists, talking to people and anything that I can do to take away from the lift of editing, of publishing, of doing all that nonsense that I have really no interest in in them. I'm, I'm really bad at all that stuff. So yeah. anything that I can do to take that away, I'm happy to do it. So yeah. I agree with, I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, I really do. It's, it's, um, uh, when I was dealing with sort of the, for this book here, um, I've been going through and working with both Annie and some other people for like more generalized marketing and they had all these things they wanted me to do. And finally I just, and they, and they were great and they really molded me and I found my voice, uh, in there. And I, but finally I just had to say, listen, um, if you need me to post every day, which is not a problem or every other day, I'm going to do 30 videos in two days and then, and I'm going to cut them and we're going to go through and you can get some feedback. 
but two days every month, that's it. That's what you guys yeah. get. Cause I, cause otherwise, cause what I was doing is I was trying to do it. And then it, like, even today with the, I had another interview earlier, I come into it and all of a sudden, um, my days, I can't really write, you know what I mean? Cause I've got yeah. two interviews with about a, not two hours between. And, you know, that's about, that's not the, there's, that's just when I start to think two hours, you know? So how, when you're, do you basically, are you an early morning person where the first thing getting up, getting open up the laptop pad and paper, uh, is that kind of the first thing you do? I, I if find you consider early well. morning, 11 AM, <laughs> sure. I, I do relative. exactly that. <laughs> What's that? What was that? Well, it's all relative. So, exactly. you know. so relatively speaking, it is the first thing I do. At the crack of morning, right? At the crack of noon. <laughs> the, the last minute of possible morning. Is when you're it starting. is absolutely the last minute of possible morning. But yes, yeah, I mean, I am, you know, because, it, well, well, what happened was as a kid, you know, when I started writing, I was, um, I had, you know, younger siblings, much younger. I was like five and a half years old, four and a half, five and a half, six and a half years older than my siblings. And uh, so they would just go to bed and I would finally have some peace and quiet to myself to think at about 9.30. So I just always started writing late originally. I got, I learned how to do it other ways, but you know, so. It's the, uh, that, that sort of deep thinking I, that I assume it takes to actually write long form like this. I, my writing is very limited. It's usually something I can complete in one sitting and maybe another right. pass afterwards, writing reviews, things like that it doesn't take a lot, but I, I would assume the ramp up to it is probably a big piece of that. My, <laughs> my kids, uh, write, write pretty well. My older uh, kid has been writing some stuff and came back and said, listen, I knew writing a hundred thousand words <laughs> would be a lot. I mean, my books are 105, 110, 116, yeah. 140, 107, 150. That's about where I, I sit. And they were they said to me, um, but I thought 50,000 or even 40,000, I'd be able to write something short. And Spencer's like, I'm sitting at around 2,500. <laughs> and I now have a new respect for you. Well, that's, that's it, right? The, the thing about writing is that it's it's the uh, almost anybody can write the first three chapters of a bad novel. You know, you I, know. I got a couple of those for sure. Yeah. yeah, right. You know what I mean. And the hard part is to get to the last chapter. <laughs> that's the that's the part. That's the part that really takes that uh, that discipline. And and I talk about that. You know, that's one of those things I've been really doing and. As I, I was saying earlier, um, to friends that my talking about this with other people has actually helped my process because my process has been all my life. I've been changing it and tweaking it and streaming it. And it, it always streamlining it, it always changes a little bit, but talking about it amps it up, you know? No, that makes perfect sense. And is that what you want to do with the podcast is kind of talk about your writing process, interview people, talk to them about the writing? What's your, yeah, kind of actually idea? what I really feel like the podcast, what I want to do with the podcast is I want to do, uh, I want to do life lessons disguised as writing 
advice. And, you know, kind of like how everything that we do is storytelling in some mm -hmm. ways, right? And all businesses and a lot of a lot of work-related things, if you want to have enjoyment out of it, there are a lot of things that you can take from storytelling and writing and things that we do in entertainment um, that make things look easy that are really hard at sometimes, but, but how to get through and, and also how much, uh, therapy I probably avoided and money I saved over the years. I always tell people 40% of my writing income is money that I did not pay to a therapist. <laughs> it's gone into my pocket. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm only joking partly about that, but well, but yeah. Are, are, do you find that when you're writing though, because a lot of times when I'm working through something creative, I don't really realize what I'm doing until after it's already completed. I don't realize that, oh, I've been talking about my dad for the last six months through this thing that I've been working on. Now yeah. I can see that. It wasn't clear at the time. And I think if I sat down saying, okay, I want to work on this part of myself through this and have it at this distance, I don't think it would work for me. Are you able to be that conscious of it? Well, I, uh, two things, like I have a book coming out, uh, which is a, a so mostly I write sci-fi, but, and, but in my screenwriting, I always wrote comedy and relationships and dramatic comedy. And this book is an adult fiction novel, you know, mainstream, definitely not safe for work, or at least not safe for the people who can read the battle for forever series books. Um, and it is very much about me, my past on a slightly different present. But a lot of it is, I call it sort of a novel because it's almost a memoir in many ways, but it's a very fictionalized top story that's actually based on other truths because it actually takes place in 19, uh, 1993 while the World Trade Organization is being formed and negotiated. And the lead character is the lead negotiator. And so I actually spoke with Mickey Cantor, the guy who actually negotiated it. But I spoke to him after I wrote the book, but before I finalized the book. And that's kind of how I write things. And that's kind of how I work through things. Sometimes, yes, I am working through something. This one, I dealt with a lot of personal stuff. And I'm the one that did the narration on it, as opposed to the other books that I have very high level narrators on. Um, because I wanted, I needed to do that. But what was interesting is that I knew in this book I was going through it. But in the sci-fi stuff, I don't always know but I see it afterwards, but I also understand what I'm doing. And it's just a release of tension. It never gets, because I've been writing for so long, it hasn't gotten in some places to the point that it think it gets to with other people. Hmm. You know, when I first became successful as a screenwriter, um, I was making six and had seven figure deals as a screenwriter and nothing's ever been made. So I made a lot of money for stuff that's never actually seen screen. Um, but during this time, as soon as they start paying a lot of money to you, all of a sudden that thing you wrote that they paid a lot of money for, when they ask for that next draft, it has to be better. It has to be, they, they want something else because they've just paid that 200 or $300,000 for this draft. And, um, I went and started having panic attacks, you know, because I was just like, wow. I, I thought, 
I didn't know it was a panic attack. I thought there was absolutely something physically wrong with me, of course, because there can't ever be anything like that happened to me. But I remember sitting in a studio uh, executive's office pitching a story, having a panic attack, and I'm lying down. They're bringing me a paper bag and some water, and I'm breathing into it. And they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through this damn thing. I'm going through this pitch. It took me two weeks to get into this, <laughs> into CU. I'm doing this, right? Um, but in general, besides that period of time, a lot of things, I think the pressure has been released where other people, they just kind of drive it down. And I even see this with my kids where, you know, they, if they didn't express themselves, you know, it would bubble up later because they didn't have it. And a lot of times now we also have this other thing where we have screens and we, we distract ourselves. But as soon as that distraction goes away, the problem didn't go away. Right. Oh, I, I, no, absolutely. That, and that, that is, I don't care what the thing is that you're, it, it could be picking up an instrument. It could be making a movie on the weekend with your friends. It could be writing a screenplay that no intention. It's something about just journaling, anything like that, that's a creative endeavor, I think is so helpful because you're right. Those moments that like the screen goes away, your focus isn't on something, you're pumping gas at the gas station and then the silence creeps in and all those things. And instead of having something that you can, you can sit down and say, okay, well, here's that idea that I've been thinking about earlier. I haven't had any time to, and you start kind of focusing on something creative, all that shit starts boiling up and it's never fun. So it's never fun. No. And what's really interesting about that is that, you know, uh, two things, my, my, a buddy of mine, he always, his dad used to say this and I always remember it. They should have a course in slow reading instead of speed reading, right? They should have a course. They should teach a course in slow reading. And the other thing that I think of is that I put down my phone. I put down, I walk out, you know, I, I have a digital recorder that I walk around with sometimes and write notes, um, just so I don't have my phone with me. Right. As I'm walking around, because I would look at something, I would get distracted. There was just a study about that was done in the early, uh, either late nineties, early two thousands, where they did a study. I think it was the late nineties. They did a study and they were trying to see the effect that computers had on people's attention span. And it was about like a person, two and a half minutes, they would change and look at a different screen. And they were like, this is crazy how people do not have two and a half minutes where they can't focus without switching to another screen. The phone comes in, they do another version of this test in 2010 or 2011 it's down to 75 seconds. They did it just two years, like a year before the pandemic, it was down to 47 seconds that people had to flip between a screen. And you can't multitask. It's not possible. I don't care what any, agree with you. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing. And and women, women, so this is, this is the male mind, female mind, right? Male mind, female mind, Women will say they can because they can switch between better yeah. than most males. Like every, everybody's different, yes. but we're just talking generalities. But in general, women can flip between different things and they can, they have less, they have less pain in the transfer, in the transition 
than most than most males do. Still can't do two things at once. You yep. still have a loss. And one of the things that I try to do is just get out there with my kids and just say, go put those damn things down. Let's go outside and not be like, because I use technology. I'm much more technologically advanced even than they are sometimes. Sure. So it's not like this like generational thing. It's like, I just know contemplation is a lost art, you know? And if you don't contemplate, you not only will you not find a great story, you won't find the the self that can tell the great story. I, I agree with you in these studies, because obviously this is something the switching between, but then weirdly enough, in the same time, which I think something that needs to be looked at is the explosion of long form content podcasts that are three, four, five, six hours long, people watching episodic television in one go and going through these things where they absolutely, you have to pay attention to every detail because they're heavily plot driven yeah. things oh, that yeah. you'll get lost and you need, you know, game of Thrones, you need a map to get through the cast of that. It's like, you know, it's as close as we get to Dostoevsky at this point in time with the number of characters you have to deal with. Yeah. So I, I think that there is some truth to that, that we focus, we move focus between bullshit, but the things that matter, I think we still know how to focus on. Do you know, do you like Chris or Christopher? Uh, either way, I'm fine. Okay. I like Edward. So that's why I asked would people have their whole name up there. Um, so I will say this, I'll tell you why I think so, because we have a pause button and the 10 second <laughs> rewind. True. <laughs> we have the pause button and the 10 second rewind. When people were just watching television and it was on and they could not record it and it had to go through, it had to be at a certain level where it couldn't get to the depth. I think now we can listen to this stuff again. We can go in and kind of delve and go, wait, what was that again? What was that again? Now I got it. Okay. I understand. Now I can move on. And you're right. I think there's been great long form stuff and I'm excited to see that. It's always very interesting. I just had this conversation with a bunch of people. It's like, there's two algorithms going on. There's one where if you make something really good in 30 seconds or 15 seconds, people will be excited by it. Then there's another where if you get past eight or nine minutes, people will also be interested in it. Yep. There's this middle ground that nobody knows what to do with in some ways. Like it's like three or four minutes. You, if you have three or four minutes to say something, take 10. Well, I'm always like, I mean, I, if I can say it in 10 minutes, why would I say it in two? I mean, you know, I'm the, you know, I, I, I totally believe in that in that Mark Twain, uh, at, you know, letter he wrote when he's like, I'm sorry, I apologize. I didn't have, uh, the time to write you a short letter. So I wrote you a long one instead. Well, I, I mean, yes, it's funny, but there's also truth to that. When you there just is. vomit out everything that you have to say about any given subject, that's easy to do. But then oh, when you have to be concise and clear and get it down to what are the two fundamental points of this, that is something that takes longer. Cause you have to go through the first process to get down to what really matters. I am, I am, you know, the, the nightmare of all nightmares has been as a writer is to write, um, is to write a treatment of a screenplay I'm going to write. I've been told, I've been asked, I've been paid. People have threatened to pay me to write a treatment. And I finally have gone and said, listen, I can give you an outline. I will give you a, I will pitch you a story. 
but it's going to take me longer to write the outline and the treatment than it is to write the whole script. Just let me write the whole damn script and you will get it faster and it'll be better. Because trying to write about what I'm going to write about is a whole different thing than just writing it, you know? So yeah, I agree. Absolutely. You find those little connect, the connective tissue in that process and you realize, okay, I need to get from here to here to here. But actually while you're writing it, you realize, oh no, no, I actually went a totally different path to get to this place. I maybe got there or maybe I decided along the way, actually, this is a much better ending than I had in mind, or this is a much better through path. And all those little segues and diversions that happen in storytelling and anything creative that it's, you can have a vision of it, but once you actually put pen to paper or you put actors in front of it, things go sideways every time for me personally. Well, I mean, it's this, it's that same thing, right? You know, no plan, you know, survives first contact. Yeah. No plan survives first contact. So it's interesting that for me, I do plan stuff out. So I used to plan stuff out as a screenwriter, really like plan it out, get my three by five cards and do it in incredible detail with indirect dialogue. And then by the time I got the story out to go write the screenplay was pretty simple. Uh, and as I got better or more cocky, I did that <laughs> less and less and less. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I have the whole story in my head. And then I started to realize, well, sure, I can keep a 120 page, two hour screenplay, relatively speaking in my head, I should map it out. And I do, I've come back to that. But when I started writing books, um, books were just, that was just way too much information to try to keep track of. And the battle for forever series, which, um, league of old is the third book in, um, I have a timeline that is from 7,000 BC to the present because these characters, some of the characters are a hundred times as old as the regular person. They're not immortal. They just, they can die, but because they have had to live for almost, you know, 14, 1500 years before they can even procreate, say at the very earliest, um, anybody who has anything that's not somewhat of the best of humanity's gene pool doesn't survive long enough to pass it on. So, um, so I've had to go through and keep track of where these people are 300 years ago. How long would it have taken to get from the place they were to the place they were going? What happened in between? Were there some famous events? Um, and so, so because of that, my next book, which not the one that's the, the velvet sledgehammer, the sort of comic dramatic one. Um, but my next sci-fi book, I really mapped it out because it has all these different things where the battle for forever has no magic in it. There's no magic. The only device that sci-fi is that these people live longer. It, it doesn't read like sci-fi. It do, that's what I was going to, it doesn't play that way. This is no. something that uh, at times it feels like a real kind of the almost 
150 page action novels that you would get in the 70s these kind of like you know yep. and it also has these elements that are almost exploitation you have moments that are very funny in it you have moments and there's actually more comedy in here than i was expecting there's actually yep. several lines in here that really did make me laugh that i really enjoyed but this is it's not something that's just a monolith it's not just one thing and because of that it feels very lived in yeah i mean i'm you know i'm a comedy writer I mean, that's what I, I mean, that's how I, I, but I don't, I mean, I think of myself somewhat as a comedy writer and I have been a comedy writer in my life. Um, but I don't write comedy in a way, right? I write and I always tell people this, right? I'm writing something funny because that's the way it comes out because that's what happens when you put people in pressure cooker situations. Like there needs to be a release valve. There has to be something. And, you know, um, you know, that's one of my favorite things is to, you know, whenever I'm working with somebody, I always used to say like, this is the direct way we can get directly to what we need to get here. What if we turned it around and did the exact opposite? Like, what if instead of like, you know, you know, it's, it's that joke in a way, like, you know, I am right behind you when we attack so that when we turn around and run, I'll be in front. Right. You know, and, <laughs> right? you know, and so, but, but then, but that's, but, but we expect somewhat of that turnaround, right. That 180 mm -hmm. degrees. So what if we just turned it 90 degrees, either ramped it up a bit more or dialed it down a little bit. So it was kind of going off from where the straight is, the reverse is, it's to the side at some angle in between. And comedy comes from that juxtaposition of what is and what should be and what actually happens. You know, it's why when someone walks into a house and there is a glass door and they run into it, we think it's funny Always. because we're just watching a guy walk into a house and that's all that's supposed to happen. But that's not what happens. You know, well, you know. It, it, the opening line of this book, which is something that it's, it stuck with me right away because it was, okay, this can be one of two things where it's, it's something along the lines of like Paris looks like anywhere else. When you have your hands around somebody's throat, Paris so, looks exactly like any other place when your fingers are wrapped around someone. There you throat. go. So <laughs> you say that, and that's either going to be something that doesn't know what it is, and it's it's going to take itself very seriously in that vein, and I'm going to lose interest very quickly, or it's going to be something that's having fun with this. And to me, that was something I just had this smile on my face as soon as I heard that. I'm like, okay, I think I know what this is, and I think the author clearly knows what this is also. And, and it's just, I think it's such a great... Did you read or you listened? You listened, right? I, I listened to it. And it was something so that it took yeah. me a while to get the code <laughs> this yesterday. So it was, yeah, no, uh, no. it was, uh, it was a process, but it was, Annie was working overtime on Sunday to make that happen. I know. Very I, appreciative for it. I am appreciative of that, of that too. Well, one of the things is to hear Ray deliver. Yeah, that's a big that, piece. You know, I mean, I, I did a, I, so I did that, when, when, you know, uh, for my sort of, really good fans that uh, join up and communicate with me. I have about like eight or 900 of them that are really, really good um, tight knit group people that send feedback and sometimes they get to read things early. I gave them a listen to me doing the first chapter. And, uh, and I did that line 
And he did that line in very similar ways. And it was, it's, uh, I even had said at the time, a long time ago, this may be my favorite opening line that I've ever written because it is exactly that, that thing. And I had actually originally had a line right afterward, which was, which explained what I meant. It's surreal, blah, 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 whatever. And I cut it because I had undercut myself. I had undercut myself with, it doesn't, it doesn't need anything else. It just is. And it sets you up for what's coming. And like you said, um, I just did a video, um, recently that it's not out yet, but it's one of those 30 that I've done that will be, that is going to be released as we go. And it was based on a sentence that I heard when I was 16 years old. Um, I never said he stole my coat or I never said she stole my coat. And I was coming home from a girl's house. It was 16 years old. I'm driving home, uh, uh, you know, kind of warmed from the evening of like, you know, kind of a little romance and whatever. And so it's 3 a.m. And this DJ says, I never said she stole my coat. 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 Right. And he went through every single word. And I was like, holy shit. Every, every single word changes the meaning of it. I never said she stole my coat. Right. Um, and so it became this thing as I, as, as I became a screenwriter, um, very, very early on, cause I was writing, you know, plays at the time. I realized I had to italicize some words. I had to tell the, the person reading it, what I wanted them to do. You don't do it too much. You don't try to do it. You know, you don't try to force feed the audience, but there are times in the books. I, I always tell people like, you don't want to force feed the audience, but sometimes you got to italicize the hell out of them. Right. And, <laughs> and, and, and with that thing, like you said, there are people who are going to write a decent line who don't follow it up. Yeah. You know, and that is, that is one of the struggles that I think writers have is that it is, it is a hundred pages in. Cause I think people can write good beginnings and I think people can write pretty good endings. It's, it's a hundred or 200 or three pages in 300 pages in that it, it's a slog. It gets tough and it's some of the hardest writing and it's actually the most satisfying once it's done. But, uh, you know, it, it's always very funny about how people are like, Oh, do you enjoy writing? And it's like, I love my job. I love what I do. I'm so grateful I get to do it. I don't love it in the middle of it. <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, I love coming up with the ideas. I love editing the ending. I love have, I, people love to have written, right? You know, they don't like to write. And that's how I feel about that. <laughs> well, completing things feels amazing. Of course, but you oh know, and, but with a book, it's the same way for a reader as well. You've been in the middle of a book where, you know, you're 
three to 400 pages in and you're feeling the halfway mark in the weight of the book. And you have two reactions at that point. You look at it and you start getting sad that this thing's going to be over. Yep. Or you start thinking, when the hell is this thing going to be over? It's one of the two. It so is one of the it, two. And so it's that you can feel the writer struggle, I think, in that also, where they sometimes get lost in that part. It's not something that's lost on the audience. No. And I'll tell you what's what's so interesting is that there are this is another thing with with a problem sometimes with attention, with making sure you can get through things. There are books. And there are books that I read. Like I had this teacher from high school who, when I was first in Los Angeles, I still kept in touch with one of my teachers. Um, he was, uh, he was somebody who was also our class advisor. So he was kind of like hung with us, uh, you know, and, and we really knew this guy. And I said, Hey, I would, I need a book. I don't know of a book I need. I need a book to read. Right. I'm out here writing screenplays. I know a lot about movies. I don't, I mean, I'm not as much about books, right? I need a really good book. And he says, go read Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. It's tiniest type in the world. And it's 990 pages long. It's like, it's a it's, monster. <laughs> it's a monster, right? I don't even know how many words it's gotta be 250, 280,000 words, at least, at least, at least. <laughs> And I am 70 pages in, 65 pages in, and I call him up and I'm like, they're kicking pigs. Uh, the leads are sitting on the porch in rocking chairs, kicking pigs. They're talking about the shouts underneath the pig and getting cool under, I mean, and drinking whiskey and whatever. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And he says, give it 15 more pages. I was at 65, he goes, 65, 70. He goes, give, give it 15 more pages. I get to 80 pages. I go, okay, all right. I get to 90. I get, by the time I finish that 990 pages, I go back to page one. I reread those first 60 pages and I go, those first 60 pages are amazing. It sets up every single thing we see. It's the entire part of this story. And here I was bitching about it because it was taking so long. And yeah. the payoff was so good. And in some ways, that's what happens with the Velvet Sledgehammer, uh, which is, which is, you know, there are a lot of different, it goes into the past, uh, you know, it has a present day through line, but it's a lot of flashback. And you get, it comes to a head and the payoff is absolutely worth it. And the stories are funny enough that I think people stick around. But when I read it myself, I was like, this is not a normal through line that I normally want to take. Right. But the payoff is good. And with battle for forever, you know, there are sidebars in it as well, but you got to find out what was this guy doing 300 years ago, 400 years ago. And the only way to, I'm not, we don't have time travel. So the only way I can do it is I can tell you in a flashback. And, um, you know, one of the harder things was to find those very interesting pieces in history where it's not exactly the way it is. Today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. 
I'm joined today by my son, Jacob. Jacob, say hello to the people. Oh, there you go. You're already on it. So, Jacob, when you go to Bookman's, what is it that you like to look at? What do you like to get? To get toys uh, and movies and, and the coffee news. You like to look at the movies and you like to get the coffee news, the newspaper they have out front? That's yes. great. So, last time we went into Bookman's, I picked up a movie. Um, what movie did I get, Jacob? A stick from New York, but that's the name as it hurts of the, uh, ex... Uh, as the cover. Sorry, sorry, I want So, that. no, no, you're okay. Would you talk a little bit about what you see on the cover of Escape from New York on this Blu-ray that I got? So, based on this cover, you see grass shattered and also the Statue of Liberty's face fell apart because... In this movie, Escape from New York, is the introduction is a man trying to save the president's daughter, and New York turns into a prison in this movie. And there's the hero, as you can see, very strong, in fact. Oh, yeah. Now, this is one of my favorite movies. I love this movie. Now, you're too young to watch it because you're only six years old, but do you think in a couple years from now, when you get a little bit older, you'll want to check out Escape from New York? Yeah. Okay, what's a movie that you've seen that we picked up at Bookman's that you like? Come here, talk so that people can hear you. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors? Little Shop of Horrors, that's a great movie. So, when you're going to Bookman's, you can get movies, DVDs, Blu-rays, 4K, Laserdisc, VHS. You can also get comic books, books, newspapers, magazines, home furnishings. Um, you can get tons of stuff there. Because remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And it has been fun to go through and find the pieces in history where I'm like, okay, I learned something that we think we know and then turn it a little bit, you know, in the first book, one of my favorites is like, you know, George Washington was the ninth president of the United States. He wasn't the first, he was the ninth. Um, we had a whole other constitution and we had one year presidents that were like basically what would be our, uh, you know, uh, the, our speaker of the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was the president. Right. And so he's the ninth president of the United States. I mean, he's not the first, right. You know, sure. Right? And are you having and, to constantly go back and redo the math anytime you're making references to that point? Is that something you keep trying? How do you I keep continuity's gotta be a pain in the ass on that kind of stuff sometimes? It is. Well, it's funny because later on I talk about I talk about John Adams, who is the tenth. <laughs> our yeah. second would be our tenth president. Right? Yeah. <laughs> kind of a kind of a callback. You know, yeah, there are there are absolutely callbacks. I had a I had a I had a um a fan write me and say, um, Hey, are you going to ever tell us what the hell the, the, uh, Halifax incident is? Cause you've mentioned it now in two books and you've mentioned that all this stuff happened, but you didn't say what it was. You said, you know, 2000 people died, you know, 12 of our people, you know, of the, of the Eternals Amarantos characters died and i go and and i was gonna do it but that person sending me that note went you know i think i should put it here i think i'm gonna do it in this one i think i'm gonna do it in this book and you know it that was one of those where 
I seeded something in in the first book that I did not have any intention of actually knowing what I was going to do with it. And it looks like I was smart enough to have planned it all out in advance. Oh. And, you know, and it dovetails with every single thing that's been said before about it, you know, and the places where it doesn't, the character goes, I may have lied. I don't know. I told you the truth. I said, I'm going to tell you the truth. Well, this is one of those ones I, I lied about because, and gave a reason. And there was a compelling reason why. So, so that's a fun thing that writers get to do. We get to like make up our past sometime. <laughs> Well, I, it's it's something that uh, uh, two examples of this come to mind, um, which headed down different paths. You have the the series Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. That whole setup of that show is essentially it was a one line throwaway about Lara, and they built it out of that and said, okay, let's let's figure out what that meant, That's and right. just go back. And then you have something like escape from new york where they mentioned the incident in pittsburgh where you never find out what that was ever it's referenced in two movies they go back to it there's that yeah i i appreciate both ways where you have this, I, I do yeah and you don't need to explain everything it's fun to have let us do a little math on our own sometimes no there are there are incredible things like that where you don't have there are such frustrating stories in some books and you know i mean uh, I think Lost was like that as a television sure. show. Yeah. It was just like, just like, come on, man, just give me the answer here. I'm just, but it, I, it depends on what you're trying to get away from it. Cause there's certain, and I could see your novel has these, which is really strange because the, I haven't finished this yet. I'm about eight hours into it. And so and that's a, a one day. So that's, that's not yeah. bad. You know, that's pretty did. damn good. <laughs> so pretty damn good. I, I was invested and there's these side tangents that are clearly paying off something else, but there's, they're informing character. So even though I don't have the backstory to this, it is something that I feel like I'm getting to understand them more through these sort of explanations. It doesn't feel like it's out of left field. I think if you're using that as a tool to explore the, the characters more then it's worthwhile. And that's what lost did really well. It, yep. I think that the stuff that was diving into the individual characters stories and their kind of their individual, as opposed to this larger myth, I think it was phenomenal in that sense. I, yeah, I think it was a really good storytelling, ch not ch not just technique, but challenge. And you know, I often tell people, you know, I have a I have a personal vendetta against the semicolon. Um, you know, um, <clears throat> I mean, my 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 battle cry is death to all semicolons. Long live the M dash. Um, you know, and and I went back when we were doing um, my first debut novel, Idiots in the Machine. Or, We've actually recorded the audiobook uh for that. That'll be coming out next year. And um and when I went through to kind of just go through and just clean make sure all this stuff was cleaned up, I'm like, we're looking at the text, and I found a couple of semicolons that I had put in it. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a learned person. I can understand how to use a semicolon, and there's no problem with it. But the problem is a semicolon is honestly, what is a semicolon? It's a it's nothing. It's neither here nor there. It is neither one thing or another. It's not even really a colon. A colon makes sense, right? Because it's like this piece of information after this, I've set this whole sentence up and now I'm going to give you the, the real <sighs> deal. But really a semicolon is, it's kind of like a half comma or it's a <laughs> period. It's a pause. I want to break the rule. It's much better. I'd rather have a period or a comma splice or an M dash 
Are, are you okay with an ellipses for the pause? Oh, I am a hundred. I am. A, okay. Ellipses are absolutely a hundred percent. Okay. But I always tell people I, my entire life is lived between the M dashes. Like those little asides yeah. in the books. Like if you, if you were to look, cause you can download also the, the physical copy of the book I gave, I, th- I think oh, I, can give you access. I will give you access to that. Um, if you look at where some of these asides are and where the, where the M dashes are, that's where I live my life. Like on the tangent is where I want to live. Like the straightforward story is always good, but there's the tangent is where the comedy is. It's where, it's where the unexpected comes in, you know, and some people put it in parentheses, but I mean, I just love the M dash because it's just so much like, blah, 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 you know, and then you come back to this, back to the story. Parentheses almost feels like it's something that's can be skipped in my mind though. It feels like it's, it's just a, this is the footnote at the bottom of the page. You can, you can read this if you want further information, but if you don't, you can skip this and you'll be fine. And yes, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am a. I love r- put it, using parentheses in chapter titles, like you know, in you know where I, <laughs> where I will just, you know, I mean, if you once once everybody on Twitter, you know, w- when everybody lost uh, lost their verification marks, you know, I I changed my name to Edward Savio, perhaps, <laughs> you know, and you know, I mean, maybe you know, every once in a while I've changed it up to between maybe and perhaps. Um, but I think there's perfect things. And that's where, that's the part where comedy comes in, right? Comedy comes in, in these places that are unexpected. And, you know, one of the very hard things as a, as a person who was a visual arts storyteller, a screenwriter, um, first was to translate what is funny in the visual and bring it to the prose. And there are plenty of things you can make funny in prose that uh, you can't do on the screen. Like, and even in, sometimes in the, there's a chapter, if you're eight hours in, I don't know if you got to, uh, the the Sphinx is not a, the Sphinx that's not a Sphinx at all. And don't that chapter, I don't think you, I don't think so. I don't think you're that far in. I don't think you're that far in, but in the written thing, it's the Sphinx. That's not a Sphinx ET space AL. Right. But it's said at all. All right. Yeah. At all. And there's little tiny verbal or not even verbal ticks, but, but language ticks that can be funny to the reader that get lost even in like a, an audio book, um, you know, in in Idiots in the Machine, the book, there's a book where a breakup happens. And at the end of that chapter, the next chapter, the new chapter is called What to Do When Someone Has Stomped All Over Your Heart. And it's just two blank pages. <laughs> it's just, there's just, yeah, it's just, it's just two blank pages. And then, you know, and then it just, you know, <laughs> I and then you that. turn and you're like, you're, you're on to the next chapter. And when we did the, the audiobook, that was one of the hardest things to figure out what to do. And the narrator, 
you know, we kind of settled finally on the narrator doing something like, mm. Works you know, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like and then, you know, like that, that, and then just chapter 29, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh so when you find you gotta find each each format has its own comedy. Each type of, of format has its own comedy. So um that's I think one of the the tough parts and one of the unique parts of writing comedy is to find the comedy in each situation in each media in each level of the media too they're they're wildly different and and it's actually it circles back to something you were saying a little while ago that i wanted to touch on was this idea of reading slowly and there needs to be a class in that and something that audiobooks have given me is getting performance in my head because for so many years Mm-hmm. really until I started listening to audiobooks back you know books on tape books on CD days that until then I would just go through blast through as many pages as I could as quickly as possible then I realized if I was taking time to actually perform this in my head and yep. give this it takes longer but the depth of enjoyment is so much more and in fact if I listen to somebody like Ray's performance I can get that performance in my head then I can switch over to the physical book and actually appreciate it a lot more because my internal performance, not that great. No, no, it is great. And one of the things that I like doing, so as a, as a writer, I did not listen to, to audio books. You know, I didn't, I was a screenwriter. I was a movie watcher, television watcher first. I, I did read books, but not as many as I should have when I was younger. And it wasn't until I was, you know, kind of, you know, on my 18th screenplay and fifth project with a studio where I was like, you know, and I, and I had been writing, and I had written my first book or started writing my first book, my anti-screenplay, um, where I could break all the rules that the constraints of screenplays are like a long haiku. You know what I mean? They're like just very, very constrained. You know, we have one font. We have one font we can use. We have one font. Um, and um, I, I figured I'd be like, I, I need to really dive into reading much more. Uh, so I would listen to research books. I would listen to nonfiction books. And then when I started to drive and have kids and, and have more time where I needed to do more than one thing at once, I started listening to narrative books, fiction books. What I tend to do is I will listen and then I will also buy the physical book or buy the ebook and look. And because I need to, as a writer, I need to see the words. I've got to see how the structure is formed. Listening to it gives you only so much, but listening and reading can give you not only uh, a better understanding of, like you said, the performance, but also can also ingrain the story because if we are listening and reading the visual and the auditory at the same time, your brain processes them in completely different ways. I don't know how you work when you're writing, but for me, I have three ways of writing. I write when I speak, hmm. yeah. I can make notes. I write differently when I speak. I write when I'm typing, which is a totally different type of creativity. It's almost a, playing a piano there's something 
So it happens with the words go through the fingers. And then there's handwriting. Now, of course, I don't, I use an iPad and, you know, and, and other tablets that, you know, feel like paper, but are not paper, but I'm still handwriting. And comedy sometimes comes from the handwriting or the speaking. And it, a lot of good dialogue come from the speaking way of writing. Um, dialogue comes out of both ways, but wording can sometimes come through this way better, you know, through the fingers. But it's interesting how I need all three of those in order to create a complete story or book or screenplay that's fulfilling to me, right? I can't just write it one way or the other. No, I, I absolutely use combinations of them where it's the outlining is done voice to text out loud. I need to actually, if I'm going to be presenting something and saying it, I need to actually say it out loud instead of just having an outline of the bullet points that I need to hit. I need to actually go through and say it out loud and think about this and how much time do I want to spend on something. But you're right. If I'm writing dialogue and I don't actually speak it aloud, it sounds so stilted and so phony. I actually just have to say it. And then it's, oh, the rhythm is much different when you say it aloud than it is that way. And it's an important yeah. exercise. It is. And and one of the things that's, that's, you know, I have a unique position where I have final, I, I ask for final uh, edit, pacing edit on the audiobooks. So, even when they have a director, even when there's people, you know, going through and doing all the stuff and the, all the post work, I go through and get a final pacing edit. And the reason is because well, it's like, because it comes from my filmmaking side where I'm looking at the pacing and, you know, uh, Will Wheaton, who did the first two books and Ray, who did this book, they're amazing actors. And I love everything about what they do. There are times just when you want to give it a little more breath or yeah. shorten up something or take away a breath where they needed to breathe, but it needed to be more of a rant and, um, tiny little things like that. Like their performance is amazing. Right. But those little tiny tweaks, um, where, I'm, I'm putting in that little last little pacing can give it that, that thing that I've lit, I've literally cut parts of books out or asked, you know, them to, in, in their, in the retakes of, you know, you do like, if there's errors or something like that, you, you know, yeah. people go, through. uh, and I've asked to maybe, can you do this line for me? Cause I actually rewrote it based on the performance because the performance is like, it's not that the performance wasn't good. If the performance that these people are doing, which is amazing, and I'm hearing it and I'm going, God, that sounds like shitty writing. <laughs> like they're not, it's not their fault. It's mine. Right. And so I've like, I've gone through and cut some stuff where I went, wow, I didn't need to say that hmm. because, because, because what, what it was is that sometimes, and this is what happens in screenplays all the time an actor will perform something and you realize that just like that first line, that opening line of the book, I didn't need the second line. Yeah. I didn't need the two or three lines right afterwards to try to explain what I was saying. The line itself was important enough. And sometimes that's the same thing. You hear something, you go, 
wow, I'm beating a dead horse here where if I take this out, what happens is it's a powerful statement and that's all it needs to be done. And then, you know, when I go back and I look and make sure that it's not just the performance, the performance helps. But if I look, I got to see how it reads on the page and I go still better when I've, when I'm just using this, this text here. And, um, that's the fun part about working with narrators. I, because I come from the, the movie world, I don't think I'm as surprised when I hear someone read my words differently because I'm used to people reading it differently. I never said she stole my coat. I never said she stole my coat. (laughs) I like, I never said she stole my coat. coat. Right. (laughs) I never said she stole my coat. Right. You know, (laughs) um, you know, so exactly. So, it's that's the fun part about doing this and and working with these amazing people because um you know ray ray and willa they're like my two favorite narrators they're literally my two favorite. i'm not like saying that that's I, if you go into my they're two of the best honestly two of the best yeah yeah and if you go into my uh library they are literally always in like every book you know, they do so, and way before they ever did anything for me. So I'm just appreciative that I was able to have people like this work with me. And it's so funny. I wouldn't have thought of these two performers doing the same material, but Ray actually showed a side of himself in this performance that was actually closer to Will than I'd ever heard him do before. And so there's some middle ground there that I wouldn't have thought was there, but it's actually, it was really interesting. I think what's so, I think what, what, what's really cool is that, you know, uh, and Ray has spoken about this, I think publicly. So I think it's not like I'm, you know, talking out of school or anything, but Ray has always, uh, been more curious about like his female characters, Mm. like working with his female characters. And, um, you know, because the tendency for guys with deep voices is to go is, you know, and I have a deep voice. So it's like when we do the when we do female voices, we tend to be like, let's bring it up, you know, and let's do that. Right. When really what we just need is the, not the tone or the tenor or the height of the sound, but you just need the feminization of the phrasing perhaps. Um, and I think what I was blown away with, and this has happened in the last couple of things that I've last few things I've really heard from, from Ray, where I think this is something that he's been, he's been working on himself and he's talked about it. Um, and it just, cause he's such a good actor and his voice is so amazing. And he gives you such performance that, um, you never want, you never want anything to be in the way of the performance, Yeah, you know? And, um, you know, as much as I think we'd all love to see Ray in a dress with, the, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's going to probably never speak to me again, but you know, well, it's it's one of those things there's there's um when you're listening to an audiobook you hear choices that are being made the whole time and either you're saying my god what an an inspired choice or you don't even realize it and you're just going with it and this is the new character or you kind of push back and go oh that's what they're going to be doing with this character okay and 
and it's, I, you know, don't want to name names or anything because it's such a tough thing to do. Um, but there was one I was listening to recently that it was the perform, it was a performance of off gender from that individual that made me not able to listen to the book. And it's, it's a fantastic book. So I just got the, you know, digital copy of it, but yeah, I, I just couldn't do it. I had to tap out. Yeah, it's, it's, it is very hard. And one of the things like, for instance, like, because like I said, I just did the Velvet Sledgehammer and doing the Velvet Sledgehammer, there's a lot of female um, characters in it. And, you know, they have to say like, have to say sexy things to, to each other. You know, the characters, there's like a lot of like intimate, you know, intimate discussion here. And the hard part was to, to understand how to just perform that enough. One of the positive things I had in this one, and I think it also comes across, you know, anytime you do this style is that, um, if you write in first person, I don't always write in first person, but like with a velvet sledgehammer being in first person, it's okay. If it's the lead character doing the woman's voice because the, because the guy's telling the story. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't, you know, I always try to go, how would I tell the story if I was telling the story and, and yes, I want to perform because I actually do, I don't do impressions, but I can mimic people's speech patterns when I'm doing, like, if I'm telling a funny story about what my father did or my brother or some friend of mine, I'm going to be like, Hey, you know, I'm going to talk like them, whatever I'm going to do. Right. You know? And, but, but you don't try to do them exactly you do your impression of them and that is sometimes not only enough but that's reality yeah because the lead character isn't an actor right so so um and i and one of the things i found really the really the strangest thing i found uh is something terrible that a few audiobooks have done is they've digitally tried to change oh. the voices of people like digitally changing like this deep, like I read this thing that was like a ancient Egyptian story that was based on a lot of truth, but it was novelized. It was a novelization of something. And the person had a very just booming voice yeah. like this. And then they just tweaked the person's voice like digitally. And it was like this. And I was like, you know, run away. Run away! You know, I mean, I, I don't know, like housekeeping. You know, it's from Tommy Boy. It's like, my <laughs> God, you know, that may have been what was happening in this thing because I think that's it. That would explain. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, but and it's so hard to listen to, right? It's, oh, it's it, uh, uh, but with that being said, this is not that. Like no, Ray's voice that. actually pulls off female characters in a way that's not distracting it actually works and complements the material and a good job. I, I i can't believe that and i don't do this after interviews spending eight hours preparing for something then i'm going to go after the call and go spend another four hours to finish this just for self-enjoyment so i definitely recommend people check this out i've had a blast with it and i've had a great time meeting you edward so thank you congratulations thanks man i mean this has been a fun fun epic story i started writing this for my at the time teenage uh, kids, you know, uh, they were like, you know, 16 and 17. And so, uh, you know, they weren't, they are, they do not pull punches when they give me feedback. <laughs> so it had to, it had to meet their criteria. You know, that's why 
for all the disadvantages that you may come across for having children, the sleepless nights and worry and all that, the one thing they will absolutely do without question is keep you humble. And we, oh my God, keep you humble. Yeah. Keep you humble. Oh yeah. They're oh, not yeah. impressed they... by any of my shit ever. No. And <laughs> you know, and it's so great. I'm so grateful for it. Cause you know, um, there are people who will be like, Oh, you know, it's so great. I mean, and, and I, I don't mind when fans go, Oh my God, you answered my email yeah. or something like that. I'm like, I'm just a person, you know, you know, I've sat there and gotten a plane for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sure. When I was a starving writer and I was an assistant for somebody, I had to call up on the phone and beg and borrow a, a plane from Paramount and then Warner brothers, you know, <laughs> I mean, but so I used to see these people just, sometimes they just, everything would be so hard to, you know, people push off famous people just beyond and thankfully writers are not famous <laughs> you know I mean? even the famous famous writers aren't famous it, we were, uh, me and my wife were literally talking about this the other night that it might be the perfect level of fame that amongst your fan base you are you but you go to the mall probably they yeah that you're good oh my god nobody you know um my favorite thing ever is John Green talking about, uh, I'm a writer, uh, and I don't have any ability to cast a movie <laughs> because people are like, Hey, yeah. maybe, you know, this is getting made into a movie. You want to, you know, <laughs> no ability to cast this movie. And it's, hilarious. <laughs> it's just so funny. Right. Um, it's, it's, it is the greatest thing. I always talk about this. I can't, an actor has to look like the actor. Yeah. Or they're going to play themselves or whatever. I could be a dragon. I could be, you know, uh, I could be a non-gender, you know, gender binary person. I could be, oh, I could write as could write under a pen name. Doesn't matter. I could write under a pen name. I can learn and try to talk to people and learn about something and understand. And, you know, this is something that's actually very important to me. I think that I, I always want like more diversity in writing. Yeah. I'm really grateful for the the greater diversity. I also don't want to cut off any writer from writing about things that they may not perfectly know because I wouldn't want um, writers who are more diverse to not be able to tell mainstream stories either. You know what sure. I mean? And so I think it's it's fun learning across boundaries. It's really an important thing for us. Seems like the key to empathy for me is trying to understand. So I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Well, Edward, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, man. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can catch up again sometime because I'd love to chat with you again. Absolutely. And, uh, if anybody wants to follow any of this madness, you know, you can catch me on Twitter and Instagram and, uh, TikTok at Edward Savio, um, or edwardsavio.com. Well, you and me, we're the two ones that are uh, riding Twitter into the ground at this point. So just, just see where, see where yeah. this hellscape goes. So. I'm great. Like I'll be the guy holding the pencil at the gate that's burning, right? You know, it, just going. It sucks because it was really the uh, so social media platform that was for writers. It was a it text really, space and it's just, yeah, but that's a whole nother conversation. So It is. We will get into that. It's awesome. <laughs> Thank you, man. Time enough to figure you out Time enough to write this down Wish me luck 